Well, please turn your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We will be in verses 1 through 7 today. And as we look at this, we might be tempted to ask the question, why do we need to talk about sex at church? And here are a couple of things to think about related to that question. Number one, this is the next passage in the book of 1 Corinthians as we're going through it, passage by passage. And if God chose to put it there, and if no one is higher than him, then we'd better talk about it. Uh, Number two, if you aren't learning about sex here and from the word of God, where are you learning about it? What other kinds of things are putting uh, data into your mind about what sex is? Uh, Furthermore, if your kids aren't learning about it here and from you, mom and dad, where are they learning about it? And then what are they learning about it? Number three, take a listen to these statistics uh, that are not from the people of Corinth. Barna did not exist back then. They're not from the people of Corinth, but are from a specific group of people in the United States. Of this specific group of people, 72% agree that choosing not to have sex outside of marriage is healthy. So flip that. 28% of these people say that it is healthy to have sex outside of marriage. 50% of these men struggle with pornography. 20% of these women struggle with pornography. It is not only a problem that men struggle with. Uh, 40% of those under the age of 35 who struggle with sexual addiction are women. Think of the cultural trend, the generational trends and differences. Uh, This is not, again, this is not just a problem for men. Now, just to be a little more clear, I told you these statistics are not just from the general population of the United States. Uh, The specific people group these stats come from are people in the U.S. who identify as Christian. As Christian. Uh, One article I found on uh, DesiringGod.com written by a director of an intensive counseling workshop stated that over half of the men who came for help were pastors and missionaries. And that doesn't mean that over half of the men who are struggling are pastors and missionaries. It just means those are the ones who are coming for help. So it means that they're struggling too. They're not exempt. Uh, A seminary professor interviewed for the same article he claimed that 80% of their incoming students voluntarily admitted to having struggled with pornography. And if 80% voluntarily admitted that, how many others voluntarily withheld that information? Uh, These are people who claim to follow Jesus, who want to serve him, who are struggling to fight against a sin that for a long time has and continues to be one of the most dangerous killers of men and women and children. I couldn't help but think also, uh, while I was preparing this message, while we helped to raise funds for Life Choices, our pregnancy center, remember those bottles are out there, next week is the day to collect all that. But I couldn't help in thinking about all this, over 60 million babies have been aborted in the United States since 1973. And it's believed that about 83% of those babies who were aborted were conceived out of wedlock. So if you do the math, that's 49 million 
800,000 lives. 13% of all of those abortions are requested by women who identify themselves as evangelical Christian. Uh, Though I would think that there are some uh, Christians who would not walk into a clinic and proudly proclaim that. Not every uh, lady who goes into a clinic tells them everything about herself. And so I would guess this number is low, but if the number is accurate, then 7,800,000 babies who were aborted in the U.S. since Roe v. Wade were aborted at the request of people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians. All this to say, without belaboring the point any further, we'd better talk about these things. We'd better learn what the Bible says about this and how it looks. And this sermon is not going to address every issue that we might think about pertaining to sex or sexuality, but we are going to talk about the things that this passage does address. We're going to let God's word lead the way in this discussion. And when we come to other passages, as we go through these books of the Bible, that do address other aspects of it, then we'll talk about those then. Make sense? And we're going to talk about it every Sunday, but when it comes up, we're going to talk about it. Now, to help us understand a little more about what Paul's teaching the Corinthian believers in this passage, uh, let's talk a little bit about marriage in Corinth in the first century A.D. And at that time, in that place, and I'm sure other places besides Corinth, but specifically there, there were four types of marriages that existed. Uh, One was called a tent companionship. A tent companionship. And this was the union of a man and his female servant or his slave. The union could last as long as the owner desired and could be ended at any time that he desired, including through the sale of that woman to some other man, potentially for the same purpose. That was one kind of marriage in Corinth. Uh, marriage type number two would just be called a common law marriage. We have something like that now, uh, but there it was one year. So after one year of a, of a couple living together, they were considered legally marriage, common law marriage. Number three, uh, arranged marriages. And this was what it looked like for them. Fathers selling daughters to men for marriage. Sort of like a dowry, but not. Not. It wasn't a culturally expected gift. It was a business transaction. This is my daughter, you have money, give it to me, you can have my daughter. So it was an arranged marriage that way. And then type of marriage in Corinth number four, this was only for the nobility. Uh, Their marriages were inaugurated with a ceremony where, get this, both families were involved in the planning. There was a ceremony where the man and woman exchanged vows. There was a woman and a man who would accompany the bride and groom respectively. Uh, The bride wore a veil. They exchanged rings. Guess what finger they put those rings on? Third finger on the left hand. The bride would carry a bouquet of flowers, and they even ate cake when it was over, if you can believe it. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Uh, This is, of course, where we get many of our traditions that are still practiced today. They've been doing this for a long time that way. Okay, As you can imagine, with the first three of these four kinds of marriage being most common, uh, divorce was also common. 
And the church of Corinth was most likely filled with people that had been a part of at least one, if not several, of these kinds of marriages. None of these people in Corinth grew up in America in the 20 and 21st centuries. And none of these people in Corinth in this church had grown up in the church. Remember, these were the first Christians ever in Corinth. So it's quite possible, if not probable, that some of these new Christians had recently just entered into a tent companionship marriage or purchased a woman for no other reason than to use her for his own sexual pleasure. Now what? Now what do I do? Now that he's a believer, what's he supposed to do? Uh, There may have been people who were living together for nearly a year, not quite a year yet, so they're not married, but they're living together. What are they supposed to do now? They're so close to the common law. What do we do? It makes sense then that that they would have a bunch of questions for Paul, even after he left town, after the church had been planted. And so they wrote him a letter. And in 1 Corinthians chapters 7 through 11, Paul answers questions that they had sent him. And on the heels of the mention of uh, sexual immorality in chapter 6, it makes sense that he would focus first on questions concerning marriage, which is what he does in chapter 7. Uh, And as we often do when we're saved out of a certain way of living, we think about this, we think of our BC days right before Christ, and we think about the things that were particularly uh, enticing to us, that were particularly, um, that we were enslaved by. As we might often do, there was this whiplash effect in full swing. And the fact that the culture in Corinth and likely the lives of these new believers was so full of sexual immorality resulted resulted in at least some of them in a desire to go as far away from any sexual immorality as possible to the point they declared they would not even touch a woman. This included the men who were married. The men who were married saying a man should not even touch a woman. Married men deciding it was not good for them to be intimate with their wives. And that's where Paul begins to address the church here in verse 1. So 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 says this. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, and here's the first matter, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And the wording in the Greek is, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It's being used here as a figure of speech, and given the context, it's obvious that the kind of touching this is referring to is a sexual kind. Uh, There are places in the Old Testament as well where the word touch is used in this way. Uh, This statement also says something else, however. Who is still in the forefront of the concern in this statement? That the man shouldn't touch a woman. Who's number one in this statement? It's the man. The man. Remember, the culture was all about the man and what the man wanted. And the women, in at least two of the four types of marriage they were practicing, had no say in who she was going to be marrying and no say in any kind of sexual relationship. It was arranged by the man and for the man. And so the way they phrase this question gives a bit of a hint that this one-sided view of intimacy uh, was still prevalent in the minds of these men in the church at Corinth. And Paul here in these next few verses, he's going to bust that view up. And rightfully so. So the Corinthian believers wrote this. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then here's Paul's response. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
have, the word there that he should have his wife, each woman have her own husband, it just means have sexual relations with uh, his own wife and each woman her own husband. So Paul here acknowledges the reality of the temptation uh, all around these believers. Think about this. They were living in the midst of a culture that promoted it. They did not expect, uh, it was not expected of sexual promiscuity or immorality. It's a good thing we don't live in a culture like that. That's all over us. It's all around us. It's everywhere we see it. Okay? But instead of this idea, uh, this idea of fighting immoral sex with no sex, if that was their game plan, the married couple is instead to fight against impurity with purity. Do you see the difference between those things? Their option, their idea was, there's so much immoral sex, therefore we should not have any sex at all. Paul says, no, no, no. Fight impurity with purity. And this is purity. Hebrews 13.4, the marriage bed is undefiled. A God created marriage and commanded that the two become one flesh. God told Adam and Eve and the husbands and wives just off the ark to be fruitful and to multiply. Proverbs 5 commands men to be delighted with their wives. No one else but to be delighted with their wives and to be intoxicated, to be exhilarated by their love. God gave us the Song of Solomon. And in that book, in that book, we see a married couple enjoying one another intimately and it's, and it's to be celebrated. So we can conclude that it is not sex that is sinful, but sinful sex that is sinful. Sex outside of marriage is immoral. Sex inside marriage is moral and pure and good. The man having his wife and the wife having her husband. Now, in verse 3, we're going to see what I think is the most important word for us in this passage today. The word that allows us to best interpret and apply this passage, and that word is give. Give. Verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And conjugal rights, I know we all use the word conjugal, right? Nobody ever says that unless they're reading this passage. But conjugal rights, it just means a fulfillment of obligation. And likewise, the wife to her husband. So the husband should fulfill his obligation to his wife. And she should fulfill her obligation to him. Notice, no one is taking in this verse. No one is taking. Both the husband and the wife are instructed to give. Give. This is love versus lust. Love versus lust. Uh, Speaking of love, listen to this verse that you might know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Church, we didn't take Jesus. We didn't want Jesus. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah 53. None is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3 from Psalm 14. But God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Learning about and looking at love through the lens of the gospel 
It teaches us. This is why it's right for us to define love this way. Love is giving of myself sacrificially for the benefit of another. And then defining lust as this, taking from another what I believe to be my own benefit. Though what does it prove to be? My destruction. I know I want it, but it will destroy me. Paul commanded these married men, and Paul commanded these married women, men, give yourself to your wives for her benefit, for her fight for purity, and for her enjoyment. And he says to wives, wives, give yourself to your husband for your husband's benefit, for his fight for purity, for his enjoyment. If a husband's focus is his wife's enjoyment, if his husband's focus is his wife's benefit, then he knows he's loving her. If a wife's focus is her husband's enjoyment and her husband's benefit, then she knows she's loving him. And do you know what that means? If a man or woman reads this passage and then says to their spouse, you see, you owe this to me. You owe this to me. You'd better do this. Is that love? Or is that lust? And Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives. So it's very important to have this understanding, to be thinking about this command to give, to Love, even as we read verse 4. Verse 4 says this, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The husband's body does not belong to him. The wife's body does not belong to her. And I can take that two ways. We can take that two ways. We can take it the love way or the lusting kind of way. I can say, your body belongs to me, exists for my pleasure, so you owe this to me. Or, my body belongs to you for your pleasure and your benefits, so I choose to lovingly give it to you. Which one sounds more in keeping with the instruction here? Which one sounds more like love? Uh, Furthermore, do you see how these verses completely, completely rule out the idea of self-gratification. Husbands, wives, your body does not belong to you. It is to be used for the benefit of your spouse, not your own. Uh, We just read last week in 1 Corinthians 6, your body is not your own because you have been bought with a price. Remember that? You belong to God. You already belong to him. And if you are married, your body also then belongs to your spouse for their good. And so I think, too, when we hear the verse, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God, should we also be thinking, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, be thinking about how it will benefit or be a detriment or hurt to your spouse. You can apply this to other areas besides just sex. Husbands, your body belongs to your wife. We don't get to treat it like it's just for us, because it's not. 
And the same thing, the same way around for wives. Okay? Christians, we belong to God. If he's put us in a marriage relationship, we also glorify him by sacrificially loving our spouse. Verse 5. Do not deprive one another. This is a command. And remember, these, these men had determined they were going to be righteous by abstaining from sex with their wives entirely. So by the time Paul got their letter, this was not email, it was not instant message, by the time Paul got their letter, read it, wrote his whole letter back, 1 Corinthians, had it taken to the church in Corinth and then read to the people there, the command might have been taken a little more emphatically. Come together again. Stop depriving one another. He says this next, except perhaps by agreement, meaning both agree. And for how long? He just says for a limited time. Not indefinite and probably not long. He says this, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So there's also a purpose for it. It's not the absence of activity. If you put off lying, you have to put on telling the truth. You don't prevent lying by just becoming a mime. Right? You have to put on something else. So this is not just inactivity for the sake of inactivity. You're doing something else in its place. You're not withholding from one another for the sake of withholding. You're deciding together to do something else. There's something else being done in its stead. And Paul uses prayer for his his example. Uh, But it could be some other reason that you have, another need that you have. And he says this, but then, so after that limited time, uh, when whatever you both agreed to do is done, then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, we have a battle on at least three different fronts. Number one, our own desperately wicked, lustful hearts that think that sex is for me and my spouse had better give me what's mine. That's enemy number one. A second battle, the temptations all around us, whether it be commercials, social media, TV shows, movies, clickbait on the internet, Even on the stinking news sites and sports sites, they know what they're doing. And they know who they're targeting. Even just culture and the people around us that we see around town. All of those temptations are all around us. Number three, as if all that weren't enough, Satan wants your marriage to be destroyed. He's after you. Okay? All those three things. But... This verse is not an endorsement of a lack of self-control. That's not what that's saying. If you read this verse and you say, See, honey, Satan's trying to get me, and you can't let my lack of self-control get the best of me. Do you know what that communicates? If that's how you walk away from a passage like this? What you've just said is, If I ever fall into sexual sin if I ever look at pornography, if I ever get wandering eyes when we're at the store or at a restaurant, if I ever run away with some other person, it's not my fault. Which means what to the other spouse? After hearing you say all this, what they hear is, it was all your fault. 
And there's a lot of unloving, terribly hateful things you can say to your spouse, but that one might be the king of all the not-so-smart things you can say to your spouse. Christians, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Christians, Satan can't make you do anything. You are on the victory side. It is your lack of self-control that is the prerequisite to Satan's victorious temptation. Therefore, if you ever get into porn, if you can't keep your eyes that belong to God and belong to your spouse from wandering around and looking at other people, you know whose fault that is. It's yours. You are the one who needs to repent. Okay? And that might sound like, boom, right at at your throat. But we have specialized in passing the blame in this area of sin. We just have as a culture, and sadly, quite possibly, as a church, in the church in the United States. We need to take the blame. It's hard to repent if you don't think it's your sin. So, this acknowledgement of Satan's temptations and the existence of a lack of self-control must be taken this way. Both spouses, understanding and knowing that the other is a sinner saved by grace, just like them, and by God's grace they're going to continue to be growing Therefore, they lovingly help their spouse to fight and to ignore all these temptations through a proactive love. So we don't take this verse and say, oh, my husband or my wife, uh, they got caught up in sexual sin, so I'd better be with them more often so I can keep them from it. And if I don't do it enough, they'll keep doing that. That's a trap. What it is is a husband and wife both acknowledging that both of them are sinners, both of them saved by grace, both of them growing, and both of them needing and being encouraged by proactive love from their spouse. It's a positive thing. So this is not, boy, this is hard to stay pure. You'd better help me tonight. This is, wow, there are temptations all over the place, and I'm not responsible for their sin but how can I help them to fight for purity? So before we move on to the next verses, um, did you notice there is no mention, let me repeat that, there is no mention of any kind of frequency in this passage. There's no kind of expectation, let's say, how many times a week or how many times a month a couple should be together. That's not here. That is not anywhere to be found in this passage. I have heard preachers and teachers say things like, you should come together once a week, you should come together twice a week, and they give you some kind of number out there. But when somebody says that, do you know what they just did? You think about what they just did. They just wrote a new law. And now that married couple goes home, and if they both enjoy being together more often than that, are they going to think, are we doing this too much? Are we too carnal? Is it wrong? Or the couple goes home, and maybe the man has a pattern of being selfish or lustful, and the wife knows then what she's going to hear. She's going to hear this. Did you hear that, babe? Pastor said two times a week. I told you we weren't having sex enough. That was a grenade just dropped into that marriage, wasn't it? And now, how is that wife 
going to love her husband through intimacy if all she's doing is a meeting a quota that some other man set up for their marriage? Not good. Not good. And how is that wife going to be loved by her husband if her husband is just keeping a scorebook? That's not love. And if it's not love, what is it? It's lust. I've also heard of women who have told other women, you'd better have sex with your husband every day. If you don't, he's going to get caught up in immorality. What a terrible bondage and weight to bear. Ladies, that is not right. Husbands, that is not right. If you really think having sex every day is the only reason your husband is going to abstain from pornography or some other kind of immorality, why did you marry him? It's a fair question. If your husband is okay with the fact that you have sex with him every day for that reason, as if on any day when, God forbid, you might get sick, he won't be able to control himself and feels like he has no choice but to commit sin. If that's the view you both are taking, you're probably not preventing him from lusting. You might even be feeding it, making it worse. And if you keep feeding it, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And in a situation like that, the woman might still feel like it's her fault. And it's not. It's not. Husbands, don't you dare let your wives think that way. Don't you think that way, men? In Ephesians 5, husbands, you are commanded, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And what were you like when Christ gave himself up for you? You were a sinner. While we were sinners, Christ gave himself up for us. Christ didn't abandon the marriage because we didn't seem interested at the time. It's not how that worked, is it? More than that, Christ sacrificed himself because we weren't interested. It was our sin that made his sacrifice necessary. That's why the cross is what the cross is, because we're sinners. So husbands, don't ever believe the lie that it could ever be your wife's fault that you would abandon your vow. You love her patiently, sacrificially. And listen to the rest of this passage in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Church is going to sparkle. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, set apart, and without blemish. The church is going to sparkle because Christ loved her burst. In the same way, husbands, love your wives. And in light of that, Ephesians 5 also says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, I think it would be wise for us to remember, even if we think our wives aren't being submissive in this thing or that, am I loving her like Christ loved the church 
And I might find, this might be crazy, I might find that I have fallen short of that kind of love at least a time or two. Hundred thousand. And wives, your husbands are not, sorry guys, your husbands are not going to flawlessly love you like Christ loved the church. And no other man would either. You must remember that. Even the ones in the movies. But Christ will. Christ does. Christ is loving you flawlessly. And it's really the love of Christ that enables you and strengthens you to love that flawed husband of yours, ladies. If you try to find all your rest and security and strength in your husband, that didn't go very well for the Samaritan woman, did it? It didn't go well for her. Those were all broken cisterns. But Jesus offered her living water so that she would never thirst again. And that living water, that living water will be a spring flowing out of you. And your husband will be the first person to benefit from it. And any other people then that you are with. So, one other thought before we get to verse 6. Both with the idea of the absence of any required frequency and with the idea of mutually abstaining for the purpose of prayer. I can't help but think of a reason um, why it would make sense to stop, to have the need to fast, uh, to be fasting, to be praying together. This might be a time of crisis. If you're stopping that because you know you both have to pray, it would seem to be reasonable that perhaps there's a time of crisis with the marriage or with one of the two of you in your life, in your family, in some, in some way, shape, or form. That would be a reason to fast and pray, to be patient, um, to lovingly wait. One of those problems, one of those crises might be something like previous abuse or maybe even uh, molestation when they were a child. Perhaps a young couple is married and one of the two was molested as a child and didn't realize, just didn't realize and know, foresee the effect that it was going to have on their desire or the lack thereof for any kind of physical intimacy. And that's a good reason to pray together, isn't it? It's a good reason to pray. It's a good reason to pursue good biblical counsel. And not just because you want to get things going again, but because you love your spouse, and you want them to have healing. Your body belongs to them for their benefit, and you don't want to be pushing anything on them that's not for their benefit. If you're in a situation like that and you're thinking, well, but when's enough enough though? How long does this have to take? Well, number one, that's definitely not helping, that question. Number two, let's make the goal your spouse's freedom and joy, and victory over that hurt that was caused by the sin of others. It's true, when they did that to your spouse, even if you weren't married yet, when they did that to to your spouse, they also sinned in a way that affected you. But let's grieve with your spouse. You two are now one. Let's grieve together, not be upset with them. 
Let's pray and point them to the healer of broken hearts and realize that God gave you to them for a reason and pursue that healing and that restoration. Now, verse 6, he says this, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. Uh, Paul was single and therefore celibate. Uh, Not his whole life probably, but by this time. It was highly unusual for Pharisees, and it was not allowed, period, for any rabbis to be single. And we know from Philippians 3 that Paul was incredibly zealous in his pursuit of Judaism, his role as a Pharisee. So it's quite likely that at that time, Paul was married. But by this time, he was single. And he saw value in his singleness. He was thankful He was thankful that he was able to remain single because it allowed him to focus his attention more on the work that he was doing in the church as an apostle. And we're going to talk more about that as we keep plugging away through chapter 7. He talks more about it later. But with this in mind, it's good to remember, too, that ministers and pastors can be single. The apostle Paul was. Probably wouldn't be good to disqualify other people from doing what Paul did. Okay? Uh, But then, the rest of verse 7. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So now listen, being single and celibate is a gift from God. Being married and being one flesh with your spouse is a gift from God. Both sexual union in marriage and celibacy in singleness are gifts from God. Both can be enjoyed. Both can and should be encouraged. There are joys and benefits in both. And we can also conclude then, given the rest of this passage today, and this is the opposite of what I said before, um, not disagreeing with myself, just flipping, flipping around. Sexual union outside of the marriage of a husband and wife, nor celibacy Inside a marriage. Those are not gifts from God. That is not how God intended for those things to be enjoyed. Neither of those are to be encouraged. Does that make sense? For the husband and a wife, union, physical union, should be encouraged and enjoyed. For the husband and wife, celibacy should not be encouraged. For the single person, Sexual union should not be encouraged. Celibacy should be and enjoyed. Both are gifts. Okay? Both are gifts. Jesus Christ showed us how to love. When Christ died on the cross, uh, while we were yet sinners, he showed us what love is. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross for your sin, receive the love of Jesus Christ today. Repent, believe, become a follower of Christ, even now in your seat. If you are married, let this pattern of love, exemplified by Christ in the gospel, teach you and me how to love our spouses. Let it teach us how to love our spouses. Certainly in this specific passage as it relates to physical intimacy, but this kind of gospel-patterned love goes far beyond this one aspect of your relationship. We make this the 
in our culture the pinnacle of a relationship, but is it? Gospel love exemplified by Christ, patterned in our marriages, goes far beyond the bedroom. Goes far beyond. And there's really nothing, there's no aspect of your relationship that wouldn't be impacted by this kind of change in thinking and by this kind of application. So may we, in every area of our marriage, love our spouses and sacrificially give of ourselves for the benefit of the other. And whether single or married, use the gift that God has given us to reflect his glory and to point people to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, again, we do thank you and praise you that your, your word is sufficient and gives us all things that we need for life and godliness. And God, should we uh, have come into this setting today and even in this passage had an understanding that was as we look at this and as we see your word and as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and our thinking, perhaps we've seen this as an excuse to selfishness, an excuse to lust. God, we pray that you would grant repentance where it's needed. I pray for the husbands and wives here today represented in this place, in this church. God, I pray that our husbands would continue to grow in loving their wives as Christ loved the church. I pray that our wives would grow in trusting first in your love for them, that their husbands wouldn't have to replace Jesus, that the love of Christ in their hearts would well up and and allow them, give them strength to love their husbands better. May our marriages grow because of your proactive, uh, initiating love that you've poured out for us. And Lord, I pray for um, our single adults in our church, whether they um, have been single, uh, whether they are recently now again single, whether they have been widowed or if there's a divorce in their past. Lord, we acknowledge singleness as a gift. Your word says that it is. And pray that our, our single people would be encouraged that they have been given a gift in this way by your grace to give their full effort and heart and desire to benefit many, many people uh, in the church and the community to point them to Christ. And God, God, I pray that we would just acknowledge in all of these things, these are gifts from you. These are gifts from God. And may they be used for your honor and your glory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.